Well, good morning. Is there anybody left in here after all those children just left? Geez, I feel like they're just going to start dismissing us to go downstairs and the, and the kids get to stay. Uh, but it's good to see you. And would you join me in opening up a Bible to Psalm chapter 8? Because for the rest of the summer, we are going to be in the book of Psalms. And before we do break into Psalm 8 this morning, I want to take a couple moments, moments just to talk about why. Why Psalms? Um, many of you know, but maybe not everybody knows, that the book of Psalms is known as the song book of the Bible. It's essentially a collection of 150 Hebrew poems that uh, the people of God in Israel through the church through to today is primarily used for public worship. Um, Hebrew poetry um, is, is not necessarily the exact um, kind of parallel of how we view poetry kind of in the Western world, the more modern context, in, in, in the sense that poetry today, we kind of think about it in terms of cadence and rhythm and a rhyming of sounds. Uh, but ancient Hebrew poetry, uh, their primary characteristic was a parallel of ideas, a, a kind of cadence of meaning, if you will, which is why Psalms still maintain their original power even when translated from the Hebrew language to English. And the uh, 1,500 languages and counting that the Bible is currently translated into, I, I think it was due to God's infinite wisdom that poetry in the ancient uh, kind of Hebrew language uh, could be translated because it's by meaning, not by sound. And you've probably heard that most people either lean towards being uh, left-brained or right-brained. Have you heard this? Um, we all have a left brain and a right brain, so we all have it. We all use both, but there is a tendency, at least the way we kind of commonly talk about it, that most of us kind of lean more one way and the other in terms of learning. So if you're mostly analytical and kind of methodical in your thinking, you're said to be left-brained. If you tend to be more creative more artistic, uh, you're, you tend to be, or thought to be, more right-brained. And again, I think this probably is a little bit overblown. The reality is we all use both, uh, but it's probably true that we enjoy learning, or we feel like we learn easier through kind of analytical, methodical, or creative and artistic. So let's do this really quickly. If you feel like, uh, if you don't know, you just got to decide right now, okay? Uh, if you think you're more kind of left-brained, analytical, methodical in your thinking, raise your hand. Wow. Okay, now, hands down, if you feel like you're a little bit more creative, artistic, uh, right-brained, raise your hand. Wow, we need more artists in this church. Okay, so probably about 80-20, uh, that to be left-brained. Here's the things about the book of Psalms. It's, I think, masterful in that it appeals to both left-brained and right-brained people. If rightly read, considered, meditated upon, the Psalms will make you both think about and feel for God. What I was surprised by in seminary and taking my kind of systematic theology classes, particularly in systematic theology one, where we went through the doctrine of God, how often the Psalms were referred to in that class, in that no other book in the Bible kind of gives us statements about who God is and what he has done then the book of Psalms. It kind of caught me off guard. Somebody who kind of leans a little bit more left-brained, um, I'm thinking about doctrine, kind of thick, big doctrine books are filled with the Psalms. It's the Psalms who tell us who God is. 
And yet, at the same time, the Psalms are truth that are expressed in poetry. So, so some people might say, you know what, I'm not really into poetry, uh, not realizing that all music we listen to is poetry. So, so the question beyond that is, you know, what, what kind of music do you like, and, and, and why do you like that kind of music? It's kind of an interesting way to just get to know somebody, kind of what they listen to. The reality is, it's not just lyrics that are spoken or the way music is composed, but it's done in such a way that invokes emotion, right? If instead of um, uh, Ilya and Craig and the team leading us in worship this morning, if I just stood up here right at the beginning of the service, and I just said, O come, thou fount of every blessing. If I said, O how great, um, forgetting the words, grace, great, debtor, because you don't remember the words when you have to say them. You remember them when you sing them, and I'm not going to sing them. But there's a reason why we sing. There's a reason why music exists, why it's countercultural or, or really transcultural, that there's no kind of just one kind of people that like music, that all people across history have enjoyed music. It's truth put in such a way that invokes emotion at a deeper level. Worship songs, I often say, are three-minute sermons. The full counsel of God, we want to sing about it just as we preach about the full counsel of God, right? It's the reason why we try to be very careful and intentional about what we sing and what we don't sing in this church. Because I know as a pastor, I need to admit, and I freely admit this, that there's a much better chance that at 5 o'clock this afternoon, you're going to be humming or singing a song that we sang this morning. Far better chance that happens than you remember any of my outline points I'm about to preach on. Worship songs are three-minute sermons. And so we, in our gatherings, we don't pit the singing of the word against the preaching of the word, right? The corporate gathering, they come together in order to engage the mind and stir the heart and strengthen our knowledge of and our affection for God and to increase the way that we love and serve our neighbor as ourselves, right? So, so we might, somebody might prefer the music or prefer the preaching, but we both know, we all need to know that we need both. So those are some theological and maybe missional reasons why we are going to do the Psalms this summer. Um, more practically, Psalms is a book you cannot preach through like we preach through other books of the Bible. Unless we did a three-year series to get through 150 Psalms, don't tempt me, don't tempt me, maybe someday. But rather, kind of just practically, my hope is that, Lord willing, every three years, every three to four years, we're going to spend the summer in the book of Psalms, knowing that the rest of the year, we engage with the Psalms mostly in our singing. But every three years or so, we're going to spend the summer in our preaching. Um, so there's 150 Psalms, again, in the Bible. Each one can be put into kind of a category, kind of thematic category, based on who you read. Some people might say six categories or seven. Um, but I, I think there's basically six categories. I think we have a slide of the, of the categories of Psalms that are up there. There are Psalms of lament. In fact, almost half of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament. There are Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, then Psalms of Wisdom, Divine Kingship, and Confidence. Now, it's not necessarily there are some that can probably fit into more than one category, but these are kind of six broad categories that you will find in all 150 Psalms. And so this summer, we're going to look at Psalms from across these categories. We have 10 weeks, again, Lord willing, 
Uh, Last week at our outdoor service on the 4th of July, we began with Psalm 2. That's a psalm of divine kingship. And this morning, we come to Psalm 8, a psalm of praise. I was telling somebody just before this service, I kind of have to make sure I keep myself in check this morning because Psalm 8 is one of my favorite psalms. And if I just start yelling at you, that's more of excitement and not anger, okay? Can I just put that out there now? But I think that Psalm 8 is a perfect example of a poem that captures both the mind and the heart. So if you're left-brained, dial in this morning. If you're right-brained, dial in this morning because I think it will hopefully lead us to an explosion of praise. I've said before, and I will continue to say as long as the Lord has me here, that proclaiming God's Word and simply reading His Word, I'm meditating on who God is and what He has done, will do more to transform our lives than focusing on who we are and what we need to do. And we come to church, and I'm coming like, I, like you're coming. You, you, you want this to be relevant to you, right? You, you want this to speak into your life for, for the Word of God to translate to things that you're going through. And I get that. But ultimately, if we immediately come into this place and go, what do I need to do? How is this going to help me? What's the Word I need to hear? As opposed to, who is God? Who is He? What has he done? How has he revealed himself? That meditating upon that will do more to change your life than any good self-help list can. And self-help lists have their place, I'm sure. But not here. And in this psalm of praise, we are going to see revealed how mankind locates their identity and their purpose. That who we are and what we do is only found in relation to who God is and what he has done. So, all right, let's go. We're going to take this kind of couple verses at a time. Psalm chapter 8, if you want to use a blue pew Bible, uh, we'd love for you to join us there. It's on page 450. Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Okay, there's basically four movements we're going to see throughout Psalm 8. Movement number one, God magnified. Number one, God magnified. David is the author of this psalm, and David begins with an uncontrolled outburst of praise. I probably didn't do it justice. He said, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. David's not holding back. He's not building up. He's coming out hot because there's no call for moderation. There's no need to play it cool when it comes to praising God in the midst of his creation. This is God magnified. Have you considered that the worship of God, the expression of worship towards God, is the only thing in the world you can't overdo? It's the only thing that you don't need to moderate or overstate or make too big of a deal about. And if we take a closer look at that first line, I think it magnifies God all the more. If you have your Bible open, look back down at verse 1 at the first line. O Lord, our Lord, do you notice anything? In your Bible, likely the first Lord is in all caps. The second Lord is not. Because David here uses two different names in the 
Hebrew language for God. The literal Hebrew translation is, Oh, Yahweh our Adonai. Oh, Yahweh our Adonai. Uh, Yahweh is the name, if you were here for our Exodus series last year, that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh, it means the I am. And you remember Moses asked, um, I, I am what? Like, what's your name, God? No, 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 Moses. I am the I am. Period. And then Adonai, which literally means Lord, Master, right? Affirming uh, his sovereignty over our lives. So you don't have to flip there, but if you went to Psalm 16, verse 2, it's also written by David, and it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It's the same thing. I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And so I think Psalm 8 has that same idea, but I think David, for whatever reason, writing this psalm is so over the top that he just starts out with, oh Lord, our Lord. It's an incredible preview as to what the rest of the psalm will be about. It's praise, unadulterated praise for the fact that, God, that Yahweh is the great I am, and he's also our personal leader. He's the great creator of the universe, and he's personal. Oh Lord, our Lord. And while we're here, it's also worth noting the little middle word, our. This is corporate worship. This is corporate praise. That David is writing to God, but he's doing it on behalf of Israel. This is not an individualized proclamation. The reason why we need to say that is because we often only think about our worship of God personally. But rather, most often in the Bible, it's something we proclaim together. That God has wired all people to be worshipers. You've never met somebody who's not a worshiper. And not only worshipers, but communal ones. We want to share praise with others because praise shared is praise multiplied, isn't it? Praise shared is praise multiplied. This is why if um, sometime this summer, whether around here or if you went away and you saw a beautiful sunrise or a magnificent sunset, what do you always come initially do? You're like, oh my gosh, Quick, I need to go find someone to come look at the same thing I'm looking at. Or if you're alone, you're looking for your phone within like three seconds. It's like, that's amazing. I got to get a picture of this. I got to send it to someone. I got to post it on social media. And the picture never looks as good as it is in the moment. But why do we do that? It's hardwired in you. Because praise shared is praise multiplied. We do not get the most enjoyment out of something unless we can share it with others. One of the many reasons why we value this gathering, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday at Grace Church, that we value uh, being embodied in person that we are grateful for the live stream, and we're going to continue being able to do the live stream because God is doing some good things through it, but primarily we want to value and encourage in-person, embodied fellowship because it's in community where we can stand up and say, O oh Lord, our Lord. The Christian life is a shared experience. 
And so David magnifies the Lord for the very fact that the whole earth proclaims his glory. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says here simply, there is no place where God is not. In the whole world, whole universe, there is no place where God is not. From the highest to the lowest point, he's there all the time. I came across a story online this past week where there was a couple, husband and wife, who hiked from the lowest point in the continental U.S. to the highest point in the continental U.S. Do you know what the points are? Not counting Alaska, continental U.S. They're both in California. They're actually only 130 miles apart from one another. You could drive from one point, lowest point, to the highest point in two hours. The lowest point is in what is called Death Valley, a place called Badwater Basin, 282 feet below sea level. I saw another report that Death Valley hit 130 degrees this past week. And then the highest point is the peak of Mount Whitney in the Sierra Nevadas, 14,490 feet above sea level. And this couple hiked from one to the other. You look at pictures of them. Both are breathtaking in their own rights. Both display the presence and glory of God. You know why? Because he's there. God's in the Badwater Basin. God's at the peak of Mount Whitney. But there is more. David proclaims the glory of God is seen above the vast heavens as kind of the most your mind can go in terms of the vastness of the heavens. And immediately he says, the glory of God is found in the praise of children, even infants. If you want to get a feel for this, just walk down the hall. There's probably one crying, screaming right now for the glory of God. And and David's given us this contrast of of big and and small, and he's magnified through it all. I find it very interesting that Jesus quotes Psalm 8 one time in the New Testament. And you know which line it is? The line about praise coming from babies. If you remember on the day that he entered Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey. It's what we know as Palm Sunday. He goes after that and flips tables, clears the temple of the merchants inside the temple gates, and then the blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. That's even a picture we often overlook on Palm Sunday. He comes in, he drives out those who are mean something in culture, who are highly thought of and respected. He drives them out, and who's he invite in? The lowly, the marginalized, the blind and the lame. And he heals them. The chief priests are watching him. And then they watch children praising him after he heals the blind and the lame. And these children are even calling him the son of David. And now the chief priests are all fired up. And they ask him, hey, do you realize what they're even calling you? This is ridiculous. And Jesus says, this is Matthew 21, 16. Yes, I know. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants you have prepared praise? Incredibly, in that moment, Jesus says, not only, guys, am I the son of David, but knowing that Psalm 8 refers to the worship of Yahweh, 
by quoting it, Jesus is declaring himself here to be God. Psalm 8 finds its fulfillment in Christ. The praise of children is silencing the foes in the avenger, fulfilled in the silence of the chief priests who just have to sit back and watch. This is what Jesus does. He turns power structures upside down. Again, the prideful, driven out. The chief priests, silenced and laid low. The humble, invited in. The children, raised high. This is what he does. Psalm 8 begins with God magnified. All right, let's keep going. Verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you were mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Man. All right, number two, mankind considered. Second movement is mankind considered. The reason for David's explosion of praise begins with God and then considers himself and the rest of mankind in relation to this God, meaning that he cannot see himself without placing himself in context with the God of the universe. John Calvin's first line of his famous famous theological treatise, Institutes, written in the 16th century, says this. The first line, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And in that vein, David is stunned by the fact that the God of the universe would be mindful of him. Notice what sparks this worship and amazement. When I look at your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and that word look in verse 3 can also be translated consider or meditate. When I slow down and I consider the heavens, when I meditate upon the moon and the stars, I just can't believe it. I find it uh, pretty fascinating that maybe you've noticed this, but over the last several years, the practice of meditation has kind of skyrocketed in popularity. It's making a comeback, especially amongst people in younger generations. The, The same generations that are increasingly saying they're becoming less affiliated with religion, including Christianity, are now meditating more than any other generation. Isn't it interesting? And the problem with that is not meditation, because meditation is biblical, but rather the kind of secular humanist form of meditation that focuses on self, and meditating to get in touch with your realist self, your truest self. But biblical meditation focuses on the one who created the self, amen? There's a difference. Meditation is a biblical practice, to stop and just fixate our thoughts on Him. We do this and have the opportunity to do this when we read the special revelation of His Word, to meditate upon His Word, and we can also experience and meditate upon the general revelation of His creation. The famous verse in Psalm 46, I have it in the wall of my office, be still. And know that I am God. 
One commentator suggested that David, who is writing this as the king of Israel, is thinking back to the days when he was a young, unknown shepherd in the fields, when nobody knew who he was, and how often he would find himself in those moments in the darkness of night and just look up and just be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Those were simpler days for David. Again, no one knew his name. When he didn't have the stress and the responsibility of being a leader of God's chosen people. And yet even now as king, maybe he gets a glimpse of those moments, of those memories, when he can look back and look up at the same sky and glory in the reminder of just how small he is, even as a king. I remember reading something that a well-known pastor posted once. The kind of question was, like, how, how do you get from just kind of getting puffed up? Everyone knows your name. They're reading your books. They're flocking to your conferences. What do you do? And he said, every night that he can, he goes outside. He sits in the dark, and he stares at the sky for 30 minutes. He says, that practice does as much, if not more, for his soul and to keep him humble than any other thing does. Again, Spurgeon, I have to quote him because he says it only way he can. He says, quote, A survey of the solar system has a tendency to moderate the pride of man and to promote humility. Church, in the nonstop world that we live in, how often do you allow yourself to stop and consider the vastness of God. Consider your little place in this world. Can I ask you, how often do you love yourself enough to feel small? Because worship happens, praise and glorifying God happens when we hold these truths together. That the same God who created the heavens and the earth is also mindful of me. He's mindful of you. He's uniquely made you. And, and this keeps us from having too high a view of ourselves, but it also keeps us from having too low a view of ourselves. Rather, it allows us to see ourselves in relation to who he is. And what an advantage we have even over David when he stared at the sky. You know, David looked up. He saw just stars. And he, he could only fathom then, 3,000 years ago, what, what's up there? What's beyond there? And thousands of years later, listen, we still don't know how far it goes. But we got some more information than he does. On a clear night in the desert, the human eye can see about 5,000 stars in the universe. Okay, that's not around here. Around here you can see about five, okay? And then you realize that like three are airplanes, and it's two. You actually saw two stars. But you ever gotten away from this area a little bit to a remote place on a clear night? For my family and I, not only out in Wisconsin where Rochelle's family lives, but we go up to New Hampshire every summer, and it's just like completely different from around here. Where like it surprises me every year, the first clear night. Like you look up, it's like it's gonna fall on top of you. Like it's a little scary. It's incredible. 
And you could see in a desert, I guess, 5,000 stars. And that's amazing. But did you know? I'm trusting these numbers. That the number of stars in our Milky Way galaxy is 400 billion stars. So if we're rounding up, you could see 0.000001% on a clear night in the desert. Let's take it a step further. Did you know that the Milky Way galaxy with 400 billion stars is one of approximately, what they say now, 125 billion galaxies? We ought to create space in our lives for considering, considering and meditating upon the Creator in the midst of His creation. I just finished a biography by Dutch theologian, or about Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink wrote this in 1892 about the value of rest and vacation. In these summer months, how much do you value taking a rest, getting away from the work, from the busyness? He wrote this. I'm going to have it on the screen. Quote, the time for relaxation that regularly replaced the work of the mind is a rich blessing and a precious gift that comes down from the Father of lights. The heart is opened up and the chest expands. The eye becomes clearer. The forehead loses its wrinkles. When you may set your work to the side for a time and freely to your heart's content Enjoy the glory that God's creation offers to us. This is the double movement that we consider the vastness of God coupled with the closeness of God. It leads to praise. How could it not? Number two, mankind considered. All right, let's keep going to number three. We're going to read verses five and eight, five through eight. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Number three, mankind restored. Mankind restored. So the creator of the heavens also chose in his sovereign wisdom to create mankind with glory and honor. We'll see eventually who this is pointing to, but David's writing this for the people of God, thinking about how he creates man and woman with glory and honor. What what does that mean, right? David here is giving glory and honor to God, but then says that God made him with glory and honor. It means that David knew his Bible. It affirms David's knowledge of Genesis chapter 1, that the same God who created the heavens and the earth also chose one aspect of his creation that would be made in God's image, man and woman. We are created as image bearers, not gods, but ones that bear the image of God. This is so important, I I think especially even more so today, because so often in churches, and I know I have been and can be guilty of this too, when we start talking about us and mankind, we always start with Genesis 3, don't we? We're sinners in need of salvation. 
And that's not untrue. But the Bible doesn't start with Genesis chapter 3. It starts with Genesis chapter 1. That mankind was created as image bearers and God saw that it was good. That all people contain the Imago Dei. That church, you've never met somebody. You've never read about somebody. You've never seen someone who was not made in the image of God. And as simple as that sounds, there might be no truth that has been more obscured in mankind's history than the fact that all fellow men and women in the universe are image bearers. And notice the two other aspects of creation that David mentions. He says that we were made a little lower than the angels and a little higher than the animals of the world. 11th century theologian Thomas Aquinas wisely observed in Psalm chapter 8 that in the creative order, angels are spirits without bodies, and animals are bodies without spirits. But mankind is the great in-between, lower than angels, but higher than animals, and made with both body and spirit. And the image of God in us was not erased at the fall in Genesis 3 when sin entered the world, but it was tarnished. The fall did unbelievable damage. And the decision that it led all of us to make who then born in with a sinful nature is the decision to not give glory to God, but to exchange it for the glory and worship of other things. This is what sin did. This is what sin does. It takes our eyes away from God and from the heavenly beings above to be more like Him. And then it fixes our eyes downward to be more like the beasts below. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul puts it like this. Claiming to be wise, they, meaning all of mankind, became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our eyes went from above to below. And while we were created with spirit and no body, or spirit and body, excuse me, because of sin, we look like the rest of the creative order, bodies with no spirits. This is what Paul means when he says, due to sin, we are spiritually dead, not dying, dead. That you're resembling that which was created below you. And that sin not only separates us from God, but it's the cause of contention between mankind themselves. Because praise looks upward, but pride looks inward. We just stare at ourselves. And the collateral damage of pride is to lash out against your neighbor, your fellow image bearers. And that's the pride of glorifying self. It's the foundation of all sin against other people. It's the foundation of the systems of slavery, both past and present. It's the foundation of war. It's the foundation of gossip. It's the foundation of slander towards one another because we fail to see one another as image bearers. Sarah Zilstra writes in her book, Gospel Bound, that just came out, quote, when we stray from God's plans... The weak and vulnerable suffer most. And yet, incredibly, 
rather than hand us over to the desires of our fallen hearts, God intervenes. God moves to restore. How does he do it? This is where Psalm 8 is pointing towards. He does it by sending his one and only son to become a man, to become a human, to become that very being which he created with glory and honor. So I want to take you to Hebrews 2. Again, you don't have to turn there. But in speaking about Jesus taking on flesh, the author of Hebrews quotes none other than Psalm 8. And then after quoting Psalm 8, he says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. You see it? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the incredible good news of the gospel. This is the fuel of our worship and praise. Not only that we are created in God's image, but that God acted. God moved to restore that image within us because by his grace, he has tasted death. What a phrase. He has tasted death for those who put their faith and trust in him. This is where I want to explode. I want to make this true for everyone. I want to shake this into people, right? But I can't do that. I can't do work only the Spirit of God can. But the call to action for everyone in response is, is surrendering to God. And each person will be held account for that for themselves. Will you accept the gift of restoration by another, namely Jesus? taking this taste and sting of death on your behalf. Do you know that without Christ, you will be left to experience spiritual and eternal death on your own? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be restored? It's not go and behave better and hope you come back and we'll try again. It's surrender. It's repentance and faith. It's finally Stop trying to do it on your own and trusting your life to Christ. All right, let's finish up. We've got one verse left, one more movement. Verse 9. It's going to sound familiar. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Number four, God glorified. There's God magnified, mankind considered, Mankind restored and God glorified. And I love how the praise and explosion of praise towards God is what bookends the Psalms, displaying how all things in creation start with God and lead to praise, and how all things in our recreation and salvation start and end with God and lead to praise. This is the fruit of salvation. It's a reordering of our worship. It's a restoration of our identity and our purpose. Who we are and what we do is only found in the context of who God is and what God has done through redeeming his fallen creation in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. David asked a question in this psalm. Who is man? That you are mindful of him. 
Again, I have to quote her because she says it better than I could. Zara Zilstra in her book says, quote, I am a child of God, a sinner saved by grace. I was born to know God, which makes me love him, which makes me worship and serve him with joy. And then she writes, I am living inside the greatest story ever told, that of God's never-ending pursuit of his people. This restoration is evident first and foremost for God, and second and vitally in the way we live here on earth. A right praise of God will do more to change and impact and form your life than anything else will. To quote Jesus himself, it will help and grow you in loving your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and essentially loving your neighbor as yourself. Just as pride looks inward and leads to collateral damage to our neighbor all around us, so now restored praise looks upward and leads to collateral benefit to our neighbor. This is the full picture of the gospel, not just individual salvation, but redemption of God's people, that God saves, that God brings his people together and then works through his people to cultivate and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Commentator Derek Kidner said Psalm 8 is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. It's a psalm that takes us all the way back to the beginning. It's a psalm that brings us all the way to the end. And God stands at both. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. How without fail, it both engages our mind, stretches our mind, and stirs our heart for your glory. Father, remind us that when we behold you, truly behold you, that that not only leads to praise, Lord, but that shapes the lives we lead. It shapes the people we love and serve. That we join you in the process of flipping the power structures of this world where the prideful and the well-known and the arrogant are driven out. And the lowly, the humble, the marginalized are invited in. Father, guide us in trying to be a church that displays that gospel which you declare. And let it be for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So please stand as we respond in song and prepare to take the Lord's Supper. <laughs>